You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Massimo Piliucci. Massimo's uh, academic background is in biology, genetics, and philosophy of science, and his professional interests range from stoicism to ecology. And he has a long-standing interest in the relationship between the humanities and the sciences. Massimo's books include Phenotypic Plasticity, 2001, Making Sense of Evolution, 2006, Nonsense on Stilts, How to Tell Science from Bunk, 2010, and How to Be a Stoic, 2017. He is the co-editor with um, Martin Bowdry, who is also a former guest on this podcast, uh, of a book about the demarcation problem, which we'll talk about in a moment. And he has also been... um, active on our letter platform. I'll be talking a little bit more about letter at the end of this podcast, as I usually do. I highly recommend you go and check out our site at www.letterwiki and especially Masmo's two conversations on that site, which I think provide a really nice, clear illustration of the way that you um, do reasoning and the way that you draw on philosophy to reason about scientific topics. And I will put links to those two conversations with former podcast guest also, uh, David Sloan Wilson, and with Philip Goff. I'll put those into the show notes. And um, I will also, as usual, add to the show notes Anything that we mention in passing, uh, which I can find a link or reference to, will be in the show notes. Massimo is currently Professor of Philosophy at SUNY City College in New York. And I am coming to you from my new home. I think this is the first, the yes, the third time, the third podcast that I'm coming to you from my new home in London. Welcome, Massimo. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, I also wanted to mention that Massimo is the co-formulator of of the Extended Evolutionary Synthesis, which is uh, an attempt to deepen our understanding of evolution by supplementing Mendelian genetics and Darwinian natural selection theory with um, niche construction, evolvability, evolutionary development theory, and epigenetics. I think we won't go into that because that's probably above my pay grade. Uh, to understand, frankly, but I will put a, put links for people who are interested. So I wanted to start by asking you about the difference between um, science and pseudoscience. How can how can we tell the the difference? Um, I've had some some of my Twitter followers have been asking about this as well, and uh, especially in this time of conspiracy theories around um, 5G, 
anti-vaxxers, uh, people like Candace Owens talking about Bill Gates's desire to poison the world through his evil vaccines, quote unquote. Um, how do we, if we're faced with something that that sounds coherent and a person who is very charismatic and perhaps attractive and convincing, as Candace is, for example, what? how can we tell the difference? That's a great question. And philosophers have been thinking about it for at least about a century since Karl Popper, at uh, the beginning of the 20th century, in- introduced uh, the, what is called the demarcation problem in philosophy of science. I saw that one of your um, listeners actually asked for as precise a uh, definition as possible and as precise as a, an account of the demarcation yes. as possible. And I'm sorry to disappoint him or her, but that's not going to happen. In fact, if there, is, <laughs> if there is anything that philosophers have learned over the last century is that the demarcation problem does not, in fact, have a simple uh, solution, which doesn't mean that there are no ways to approach the problem there is, and the, or that there is nothing that we can learn about the problem, but it's complicated. So for several decades, beginning with Popper, uh, philosophers have gone under after what they call a set of uh, necessary and jointly sufficient conditions to define concepts such as science, pseudoscience, etc. Now, what does that mean? It means that you want ideally a very simple definition based on a small number of criteria, and you want those criteria to include only precisely what you want in, like you know, in every science, let's say and to exclude just as precisely what you want out, let's say, every pseudoscience. Um, this went on for decades. And then in a landmark paper, uh, Larry Lawton from the University of Pittsburgh in the, in the 80s pretty much argued convincingly and, and uh, convinced, in fact, the philosophical community, which, by the way, I have to tell you, it's not an easy task uh, to convince a bunch of philosophers. <laughs> you <laughs> yes, know, the joke is that if you, are, if you have 10 philosophers in the room, there's going to be 11 opinions about whatever it is that you're talking about. Um, Lathan, however, made a very, very cogent case that, no, that kind of solution for the demarcation problem is just not going to happen. And the reason it's not going to happen is not because we don't understand what science is or, or, or we don't understand what pseudoscience is and so on and so forth. The reason is, uh, was actually pointed, pointed out uh, many years ago, a, decade, a few decades ago, by Ludwig Wittgenstein, who was one of the most influential philosophers of the 20th century, but he was not a philosopher of science. He was a philosopher of language, in a sense. And Wittgenstein said, look, um, pretty much every complex, interesting problem, uh, sort of concept is going to have inherent fuzzy boundaries. You will not be able to give a definition, a sharp definition of anything that is more complicated than, you know, simple geometrical figures or something like that. And uh, his, his favorite example is actually, uh, forget science or pseudoscience, but even the sim- simple concept of a game. So if I ask you, you know, give me a definition of what counts as a game, you might, you might start listing a number of criteria, like, you know, people do it for fun or there are rules uh, or, uh, you know, there's competition or something like that. But every single one of those criteria actually is going to include things that are not games. Like, you know, having sex is not a game in my mind at least, but it's fun. Um, and it's mm. going to exclude things that actually are games. Mm. Like competition, well, not necessarily. Solitaire, for instance, is a card game where there is no competition. So Wittgenstein's point, of course, was it's not that we don't know what games are. It's just that the concept is inherently fuzzy. And the only way we can get a, a hold of, of, of the concept is to just start carefully reflecting over specific examples and say, 
well, that sounds like a game. That's a game. That's a game. That's not a game. That's not a game. And then there will be inevitably situations where you'll set, you have to say, huh, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe it's a game. Maybe it's not. Maybe it has sort of it's a borderline category. The very same thing we argued with uh, my colleague and friend Martin mm. Badri in, in the book, The Philosophy of Pseudoscience. Uh, the very same thing ap- applies to science and pseudoscience. Um, in that book, I drew a hypothetical sort of landscape um, to, to show what I, what I meant. And imagine that you have sort of a, a diagram, a three-dimensional diagram, where on the x-axis, on the horizontal axis, you have some measure of uh, uh, theoretical sophistication of a field. Okay? And on the vertical axis, the y-axis, you have some measure of empirical content of that field. After all, if we're talking science, then there has to be both theory and empirical uh, evidence, okay? Now, if you now start populating that diagram with things that we think are sciences or pseudosciences, they will occupy the entire diagram. And it's gonna be interesting to see where individual things are. For instance, on the upper right corner, which would be uh, inquiry, type of inquiries that have a high uh, empirical content and at the same time they're, they're theoretically very sophisticated, I would put there something like, you know, fundamental physics, uh, you know, the theory of quantum mechanics, the theory of general relativity, mm. uh, evolutionary biology, chemistry. All of those are both high theoretical content and high empirical content. At the opposite end, uh, the, the, the bottom left corner, where there is both very little theory and very little empirical evidence, I will put pretty much every, most pseudosciences. Astrology is going to be there. Creationism is going to be there uh, because there's really very little in terms of sophisticated uh, sort of theory. And especially there is very little in terms of data that supports that, that theory. But then we're going to have a large area in between where we're going to find all sorts of interesting things, things that we're going to look at it and we're going to say, hmm, I'm not quite sure whether this is actually a pseudoscience, a quasi-science, a sort of a science, a, a, a science that is about to develop into something else. So examples there, I think, I would put there, for instance, the SETI project, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. You know, it's, most people re- regard it as a science, but the theory is really Skeletal. There is very little there. It is, there is essentially the only theory is we hope that, alien, that there are aliens out there and that they think like us. That's pretty much the theory. Okay, um, and data it's zero. <laughs> so far, we have no empirical evidence whatsoever of the existence of alien beings. Now, of course, that could change tomorrow morning, and that'll be fine. But at the moment, that's where SETI lies. Evolutionary psychology, um, I think, falls somewhere in that area. I mean, the theory is fairly sound meaning that uh, you know, the basic uh, approach of evolutionary psychology is that uh, human behaviors evolved, and some of them at least evolved by natural selection. Well, sure, why not? I mean, human beings are animals, and they're certainly not exception to uh, the general laws of biology and to uh, evolution by natural selection in particular. However, the empirical evidence there is very lacking because, you know, for obvious reasons, we can't go back into the Pleistocene and check what our ancestors were actually doing in terms of behaviors. Behaviors don't fossilize very easily. And moreover, we can't study really the same behaviors today 
uh, which is what a biologist would do with another species, because we don't engage in the same behaviors. I mean, the, the kind of stuff that we do in complex cultural, technological, uh, you know, literate societies today is very little to do with what our ancestors were doing in the middle of the savanna during the Pleistocene. And so it's very difficult. It's very speculative. There is, it's very difficult to, to test hypotheses. So I would put that one too in this kind of gray area uh, where it's not quite a developed science, it's not quite a pseudoscience, but it's it's something to take a look at. Mm, mm. Um, yes, I I would I would definitely play something like Jeffrey Miller's book, The Mating Mind, into that area, where he mm-hmm. he makes a very convincing and interesting and um, argument that most of our mental capacities are, are the result of sexual selection, uh, but I. I, I don't see any evidence. I don't really see firm evidence in either direction. This theory would fit the data, but I, it might also not fit. That's right. I mean, whenever we talk about the evolution of cognition, which is what, uh, what Miller is talking about, um, I am reminded of a quote uh, from uh, one of my sort of scientific heroes, Richard Lewontin. Uh, Lewontin uh, was, he's not retired, but he was a uh, geneticist at Harvard. He was one of the most influential. Uh, geneticist of the late part of the 20th century. And at some point, he was uh, invited to write a contribution, a chapter to a a book uh, devoted to the evolution of cognition. And most of the authors were, you know, evolutionary psychologists or or thereabout. And Lewontin has been a longtime critic of evolutionary psychology. And uh, so I still remember he wrote this this, uh, chapter, the beginning of the chapter says, um, you know, we should get out of the, we should abandon the childish notion that just because we are interested in a question that we're going to necessarily find the answer. The evolution of cognition is one of those things that is so, as philosophers say, underdetermined by the data, meaning there is very little data (laughs) available uh, that can discriminate between theories that we're probably going to... keep speculating and providing very clever and very interesting ideas for a long time, but we're likely never going to be sure exactly what happened mm, or why mm. it happened. And I think that when you when you were writing to Philip Goff in your letter exchange with him, one of the, one of the important things yes. I, I think you pointed out there is that uh, a theory or a hypothesis or a speculation um, can be very internally coherent. It makes perfect sense as an explanation. And it also makes sense within its own kind of system. And it can sound extremely plausible, but nevertheless have no, there's no way of checking it against reality. Um, Or there's, there's, reality is not providing any, empirical reality does not provide any evidence that that is the correct way of interpreting things. So that is the correct hypothesis. No, that, that's right. And so the, my, my problem with uh, Goff's, uh, Philip Goff's uh, argument, uh, you know, he argues in favor of panpsychism, the notion that consciousness is, in a sense, an elemental property of nature. Well, my argument is, that, look, uh, either you're arguing that this is an elemental property of nature, in other words, a physical property of nature, and, you know, properties of nature have causal effects. Uh, if they have causal effects, then there ought to be a way to empirically test your ideas. And when I put it that way, he said, no, the kind of properties that I, that I have in mind don't actually make contact with the empirical. There is no empirical test that you could possibly do. And I said, well, in that case, you're not doing science. Um, you're, you're doing you know, speculative mm. metaphysics. And uh, just because, as you say, 
the scenario that you propose is coherent. Well, there is a lot of, you know, there's an infinite number technically of uh, coherent stories that we can tell. Uh, and almost all of them are false because presumably there is only one reality out there. And you can tell an infinite number of stories about that reality and infinite minus one are going to be false. And if you're trying to do science, you should try to stick to whatever it is that actually makes contact with reality. But I I think that part of the problem there, which I've noticed in a lot of my science colleagues, is precisely what Lewontin was talking about. uh, And forgive me if people are going to be sort of uh, you know, offended by this, but the childish notion that just because, as you put it, that just because we're interested in something, then there ought to be an, an answer to that question and we're going to be able to find it. We have to behave as, a, as adults and realize that uh, human understanding has limits. There may be, and there very certainly will be, some questions that are going to be very interesting and about which we're not going to be able to, to discover much because we don't have enough data, we're not smart enough, or a number of other, of other reasons. And it's fine. It's, it's just fine. If you don't make progress on a particular uh, you know, question or, or, or idea or theory, then it's okay. It's just let it go, and uh, maybe we'll come back to it later if, if the situation is different. In the meantime, spend your, your, your life doing something else that is actually more mm, effective. Mm. It's knowing when you've hit that wall, that is the problem. Um, (laughs) (laughs) knowing when to kind of make the U-turn. I wanted to ask you, I think this might um, segue nicely into what you see as the as uh, as the role of philosophy, of philosophy so you you shifted over from um studying biology your initial i think your initial background was in genetics is that correct yes and uh so you were um an evolutionary biologist and you you have really shifted over to academic philosophy what was it about what was it that made you make that make that shift what was it that attracted you to philosophy? Well, it was a combination of where I was in my career at the time and, and happenstance. So I was at the time in a career, this was a, you know, a little more than a decade ago. Uh, it, I was at a time, a place in my career where a lot of academics get. So you go through your standard academic career in the sciences, you do your PhD, then your postdoc, then become an assistant professor, associate and full professor, tenure. Fine. Great. Then what? Then, then at some point you start looking around and you say, hmm, that was interesting. This, is, this has been fun. Uh, but do I really want to keep going and doing pretty much the same thing for, for, for the next 20, 30 years or, or so? And most people answer no, because, you know, scientists tend to be curious uh, by nature and it's, it's a creative activity. So you want to do something different. Now, typically, uh, what... Uh, scientists do or what academics do is they look into nearby fields. So you take a sabbatical and you say, well, let me start exploring something, you know, a new technique or a new approach or a different problem that I might sink my teeth into. Um, That's where I diverge from the majority of my colleagues. Instead of doing that and going into a nearby area of biology, I thought, hey, what about philosophy? And the reason for that was the, the result of, uh, for that specific choice, was a result of uh, happenstance, and particularly two things. One, that I grew up in Italy and in, in Rome, and uh, uh, there you have to study, in high school, you have to study uh, philosophy for three years. And it just happened that my high school philosophy teacher was a wonderful teacher. Uh, she just made the subject matter come alive. And so I, I developed and maintained an interest in philosophy, and in particular philosophy of science, 
throughout my career. Um, so I wasn't doing philosophy, but I, was, I kept reading uh, stuff, you know, article papers in philosophy of science, uh, uh, books about philosophy in general. And also it happened that uh, when this, this whole thing was, was going on, I was at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, and uh, the university there hired a bright young philosopher of science. Uh, his name is Jonathan Kaplan, and he had just graduated from Stanford, and his thesis was on um, nature-nurture. And nature-nurture is precisely what I was doing as a biologist. I was interested in what biologists call gene-environment interactions. So Jonathan had actually, uh, was aware of my work and he had cited some of my work in his thesis. So he came to campus, he called me up, he said, hey, want to go out, get some coffee because, you know, I, we have something in common, I'd like to discuss things with you. And we did, and we hit it off very well. We became friends, we started collaborating. Uh, we started writing, co-writing papers together in, for either biology or philosophy journals. And then one day I said, hey, Jonathan, you know, I've been looking for a uh, new direction for, for, for myself in terms of academic career. How about I go back to graduate school, enroll in the PhD program here, and you become my advisor? Now, notice that, keep in mind that um, I was a full professor with tenure, and Jonathan was a just freshly appointed uh, assistant mm, professor mm. not without tenure. And uh, so he looked at me and said, oh, come on, how many glasses of wine did you have today? And I said, none. I don't drink it at, at lunch. So, you know, we, we explored the idea. We went to the dean. We asked permission to do it. And uh, long story short, um, three years later, I defended my thesis, um, which became uh, uh, one of the books that you mentioned in the beginning, uh, Making Sense of Evolution. Mm. What what? That that's a wonderful story, and I, I'm I'm having done one PhD. I'm kind of slightly staggered by the, the idea of <laughs> voluntarily doing another one, especially at such a late stage um, or relatively late stage. What do you see as I mean? What do you see as the relationship between the the philosophy and the science? I I've watched several uh, discussions that you've um, had on YouTube. And I will link to one of them that I remember in particular, which Martin uh, Boudry was hosting with uh, Daniel Dennett and um, Lawrence Krauss, who's, despite everything that's happened with him, A Universe from Nothing is still one of my absolute favorite books. <laughs> and you were suggesting that philosophy is complementary to science in, in certain ways. It can answer or at least address certain questions which science is ill-equipped to address. Could you say more about that? What do you see as philosophy's role? Sure. So, so there are, I think there are, yeah, I think there are two, broadly speaking, there are two things that philosophy does. Um, one is the kinds of things that philosophies of do, uh, like philosophy of science or philosophy of language or philosophy of uh, social science or whatever, whatever. There's a bunch of philosophies of uh, within the field. And then, and then the other one is this broader project of modern philosophy. So let me start with the, with the philosophies of, and in particular philosophy of science. You know, what, what does a philosopher of science do? One thing that we don't do is science. We, we don't do science for the simple reason that there is scientists doing science and they're doing a perfectly good job. Thank you very much. So there, there will be no sense in, you know, a philosopher of science who turns into, uh, around and does science is not a philosopher anymore. He is a scientist. And it's fine. <laughs> so in other words, he would go essentially the other way uh, from, from in, in terms of career direction that, that what, what, compared to what I've done. The role of philosophy of science or of any other philosophy of 
is to study the process of science from the outside. And there are three aspects in particular of the process of science that we want to understand better. And these three aspects actually correspond to three different disciplines. We want to understand the history of science, you know, how it unfolds, and we, what, whenever it goes into a dead end, why does it go into a dead end, that sort of stuff. That's, and sure enough, there is a field called history of science that does that. We want to understand science as a human activity because we tend, especially scientists tend to forget that it is a human activity. It's a human creation. And therefore, there is a sociology of science. And sure enough, there is a separate field that looks into the sociology of science. So in terms of power structures, for instance, in terms of relations between individuals and institutions, you know, that sort of stuff. And then we also want to know, since science claims, and, and the claim is well justified, claims to be discovering things uh, about the world in a way that no other human approach has ever been able to do, then the question is, well, how does that work from a logical perspective, from an analytical perspective? And that's what philosophy, is, uh, philosophy of, of science does. Uh, we're interested in figuring out uh, how the process of science works from the point of view of logic, from the point of view of epistemology. So, so when a scientist says, uh, this is my theory and this is the evidence for, for my theory, do the two actually match? What is uh, what philosophers call the epistemic warrant for scientific statements? The epistemic mm. warrant mm. is, you know, if I ask you why do you think that that is the case, what kind of answer are you going to give me? Yeah. So now, now you could you could say, well, but why don't scientists do that? Uh, for the same reason that scientists don't do history of science and they don't do sociology of science. It's a it's a different kind of discipline. It's a it asks different questions. It works by different methods, uh, and frankly, scientists just don't have the time to do philosophy of science. Um, I, I argue that it would be good actually to train graduate students in the sciences in a little bit of philosophy, history, and sociology of science. I think actually I would, if it were up to, if I were the, direct, the director of a graduate level course, uh, you know, a program in uh, science, in any science, I would actually mandate that students take a course in history of science, one in philosophy of science, and one in uh, sociology of science, because it's important that you understand those, as a scientist, those dimensions of your discipline. But but those dimensions are, in fact, outside, in a sense, the science itself. It's, look, being a scientist, you know, when I was a scientist, uh, I was under this uh, sort of somewhat uh, naive impression that I would spend all of my time, you know, developing hypotheses and then testing them in the field or in the laboratory. The hell with that. I was spending most of my time writing grant proposals. Mm, mm. Uh, because, you know, it, the lab costs money. <laughs> and I had to get several hundred thousand dollars a year, and this is, you know, more than 10 years ago, uh, just to keep my graduate students, my postdocs, and my research going. And so it turned out that most of the time I was writing grant proposals, I was spending some time writing papers and very little, if any, time in the laboratory. I, I had people working for me. And so I can't imagine on top of that to do also, you know, philosophy of science right. or history of science. Yes. It's just that. It's not going to happen. So that's what philosophies of, I think, are for. They are, they are a critical, sometimes critical. For instance, one of the best applications of philosophy of science is the sustained criticism that a number of philosophers of science have mounted on evolutionary psychology. Uh, Jonathan Kaplan, the that my friend that I mentioned earlier, and my mentor, uh, is, is one of those that has gone for a long time uh, criticizing um, evolutionary psychology by reading the literature in a broader way that evolutionary psychologists themselves can do because evolutionary psychologists are scientists 
uh, and therefore they had to do the kind of stuff that I just mentioned. So they can't, they don't have the luxury to step back and make comparisons across fields or, or, or read their literature very broadly. Because if you read very broadly as a scientist, you're never going to get anything done. Yes, of course. So, so there is a critical sense of, um, of philosophy of science uh, as well. Now, that's what philosophies of do. Now, if we step back to the broader field of philosophy, what is the, the sort of the, what is philosophy for in general? Um, there is, I think, a compelling answer, and and that compelling answer uh, was actually articulated during the middle part of the of the twentieth century, um, and it uh, hinges on this notion that uh, we develop we're developing two views of the world. What uh, Wilfred Sellers, who was the philosopher who mostly pushed this, this notion, called the scientific image and the, um, and the manifest image. The scientific image of the world is the notion, the understanding of the world that comes out of science. Uh, all of the sciences, right? So chemistry, physics, uh, biology, geology, social sciences, etc. And, um, and it's an image that it's fractured, it's not a unified image because you get a bunch of little sub-images, one from psychology, one from geology, one from fundamental physics and so on and so forth. And they don't necessarily talk to each other because, you know, when was the last time that a psychologist read a paper in quantum mechanics mm. uh, or, or vice versa, right? And then there is the, the manifest image. The manifest image is how you and I understand the world, how everybody understands the world. And the notion that uh, Wilfred Sellers put, put forth is that a major goal, perhaps not the goal, but a major goal of modern philosophy is to develop what he called, uh, in a, using a wonderful image, a stereoscopic view of the world by which you can alternate and integrate the scientific image and the manifest image. In other words, you want to make sense of what the science tells you in terms of common language. Um, and the reason you want to do that is because, let's not forget, science is a human activity. And it's the, the goal of science is supposed to increase human understanding about the world, not just to discover new facts, but to increase understanding. And human beings are limited in their ability to understand. We think in certain ways. A lot of these, this thinking happens at a metaphorical level, at a level of analogies, and so on and so forth. And so it is one of the, the goals of the philosopher is to integrate as much as possible the fractured scientific images of the world and then to sort of translate them into uh, a more common, understandable language and, and advise the rest of us or, or give us some, some pointers to, so what do I do with this? So now that I know that the world works in a certain way, what, what do I do? So let me give you an example or two because otherwise this gets a little too uh, sort of... Um, abstract, right? Mm. Um, one in instance of scientists themselves running into trouble uh, when they try to cross from the manifest, from the scientific image to the manifest image is different interpretations of quantum mechanics. Last time I checked, uh, there's like more than two dozen interpretations of quantum mechanics. Mm. And they're all empirically equivalent, meaning that the data don't discriminate among them. And so scientists um, have been investing a lot of time ever since Einstein uh, and Bohr have invested a lot of time trying to argue about which interpretation is better, et cetera, et cetera. And um, a philosopher would say that's largely a misguided attempt. That's largely a waste of time because the interpretations, just the word, even the word interpretation should, should just give you a hint 
These are not scientific theories. These are not empirically testable scientific theories. These are interpretations, meaning these are ways in which we as human be- as finite, non-quantum level beings try to make sense of what the science is telling us. But that trying to make sense immediately crosses back to the manifest image. We start using analogies. For instance, you know, you might have heard that light has a dual nature, particle and wave. Yes, yes. Yeah, well, what the hell does that mean? I mean, <laughs> is it a particle or is it a wave? And the answer, of course, is neither. Mm. That analogy is an analogy that comes out of the fact that light demonstrably, empirically, behaves in a certain way, right? And that behavior is perfectly predicted by the mathematics of quantum mechanics. There's no issue there. There's no scientific issue there. But once we start saying, okay, what does that mean? Oh, it means that under certain conditions, it's a particle, but under conditions, it's a wave. Well, it's neither. Particles and waves are our own macroscopic attempt to understand what's going on there. The reality is that light is neither. It is its own thing, and we don't have a vocabulary to to tell each other what that thing is, which is one reason why some physicists, uh, particularly in quantum mechanics, have developed a a school of thought that is informally referred to as the shut up and calculate school. Meaning, don't waste your time about interpreting this or that or the other. It doesn't, it's it's a waste of time. It's a, a, you're trying to just to come up with metaphors that are inherently not very helpful. Just give me the data, give me the equations, I'll predict the result of the experiment, and that's all that that the science uh, is going to do. So I see philosophy, uh, the the role of philosophy, or a major role of philosophy, as this notion of making sense of how, not only how the world works in general, but how we translate back and forth between the scientific image and the manifest image. Let me add just one more thing Mm. uh, about this this concept to make it even clearer, clearer, hopefully. There are some aspects of the the manifest image that are just not translatable into the scientific one. For instance, values, right? When we say that something is good or beautiful or that it ought to be done, that there is a moral imperative to do this or that or the other, well, that vocabulary is not found in the sciences. You just don't you just don't find it in physics, in chemistry, in biology, no, nowhere, nowhere. And so that's another area where you need to separate the two images and to say, okay, what does the science tell me about, let's say, morality, or what does the science tell me about, let's say, aesthetics? But then you have to keep talking using about those things using common language, using the manifest image, because otherwise you're not making any sense mm. of, of what's going on. Yeah, only mathematicians, I guess, talk in those kinds of terms sometimes. They talk about the um, the beauty of an equation or, right. or a theory um, in, in theoretical math. So a friend of mine who is a mathematician um, says that he is he's not trying to describe reality. He's just looking for beautiful, beautiful things to do with numbers. Yes, um, that's right. Which happen by some magic to correspond to things that are out there in reality, or we think they do. Um, <laughs> that's right, that's right. Of course, I don't think it's magic. I, mm. I actually have an analogy there that might, might help. So um, that's another interesting area of philosophy, by the way, philosophy of mathematics. Uh, and philosophy of mathematics does deal exactly with the question that you're just raising, which is, you know, how is it possible that these people 
gone for decades, meaning mathematicians, gone for decades at a time, sometimes centuries, you know, playing with their own, you know, little equations or theorems and so on. And then all of a sudden it turns out that one of those things is incredibly, um, uh, you know, helpful to scientists or it's incredibly helpful in, uh, to, to figure out something about the real world. It does feel like magic sometimes. Yes. Isn't there that and, number theorist who... Um, who said that he was happy that none of his work would would ever have a real life application? That it was just about <laughs> the beautiful dance of mathematics. And it turns out his work is used in cryptography, and it's now the Damn. basis of of a huge number of technologies. Um, uh, exactly. So then the question is, well, how is that possible? And one answer that there's multiple answers here, but but possible answers. But one answer that I like a lot um, actually draws from an analogy. Um, you might be familiar, or some of your listeners might be familiar with a story by uh, Jorge Luis Borges uh, called The Library of Babel. Oh, yes. And yes. So in, in the, so Borges imagines this, this gigantic library where every book that could possibly be written with 25 characters, meaning the, the, the letters of the alphabet, the period, the space, etc., uh, is being written. It's there. Okay. And now, of course, most of these books are gibberish because they're, they're just random, you know, combinations of words or letters or points and spaces. And so it don't mean anything. A small subset of these, but still a f- essentially almost infinite subset of this is actually makes sense. It's written in a language that actually can be read, but it doesn't refer to reality. So it describes a world that doesn't actually exist. It, it, it describes a possible world, but not one that exists. And then, of course, only one book is going to be not only making sense, but also describing the world, right? Now, if you think about it, there has to be one book in the library that describes the world as it is because the library contains all possible books. Mm. So by analogy, I think that that's what mathematics does. A lot of mathematics is actually incoherent and, and uninteresting, and that's the kind of mathematics that mathematicians don't do, okay? That's the mathematics that they find ugly or, or you know, un, unwieldy or, as I said, even incoherent. That's the kind of stuff that nobody cares, and yet, it, yet it's a lot of stuff um, because there's an infinite number of combinations of things that, you know, axioms that don't actually make any sense. Then there is a, a large, very large subset of things that are internally coherent, and they may be described in aesthetic terms as beautiful uh, or is interesting and so on and so forth. That, however, had nothing to do with the real world. And then, of course, there has to be a subset of mathematical objects that actually do describe the real world. It must be the case because mathematics describe all possible worlds and the real world is one of the possible worlds. It just happened to be the one that actually exists. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's slightly blowing my mind. Um, <laughs> I I wanted to come back to the normative idea. So um, we're talking about beauty and aesthetics at the moment, but the thing that is missing from science is, as you said, the normative instruction, how to lead the good life. And that, I think, is where philosophy comes in. Philosophy is about leading the good life, leading the virtuous life, or the and or the happy life. Right. What is the best way to arrange our to arrange our our lives um, to maximum meaningfulness and benefit, and I I feel that that is where, for example, Sam Harris um, uh, Sam Harris attempts to to 
derive those moral principles from science in his book, The Moral Landscape. But I find that attempt very unconvincing. Yes, I find it very unconvincing as well. And for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, because Sam sneaks in a lot of philosophy without apparently even realizing it. Um, you know, the, the, the book, for instance, has an underlying, uh, an underlying philosophy, which is known in, uh, in moral philosophy as utilitarianism. Uh, Sam is a utilitarian. He, mm. he thinks that uh, the goal of life should be to, or, or the goal of a society should be to maximize people's happiness and minimize people's pain. Well, that's fine, but that's only one of a number of moral philosophies. And he never in the book actually defends that particular choice. And that choice cannot be defended on empirical grounds. Uh, it has to be defended on, on philosophical grounds. You have to make an argument for why you choose utilitarianism as opposed to, let's say, Kantian deontology or some kind of Christian deontology or virtue ethics or communitarianism. I mean, there is a number of positions out there and he just does not even go um, there. Either I don't know whether he realizes it or not, but he starts out already with certain philosophical assumptions and then he builds from there. So in a sense, he's cheating. <laughs> he's, he's, he's telling you that science... Uh, is going to come up with answers to moral questions, but in fact, he has knocked in a lot of philosophy right at the beginning. The second reason I think is cheating um, to some extent. I don't mean this on purpose as you know maliciously, but as sure. he, he's, he's taking a he's taking a shortcut. Is that if you check, I, I actually reviewed the book when it came out, and if you check um, the the one of the beginning, the early endnotes to the book, um, there Sam says that he defines science as any kind of uh, activity that is empirically based um, and, uh, and reason-based and informed by empirical evidence, okay? Well, but if that is the definition of science, then philosophy is science because philosophers reason in a way that is in, in, informed by empirical evidence. For that matter, uh, after the pandemic is going to be over and I'm going to start navigating again the New York City subway system, I'm also doing science, apparently, because I'm using uh, my reasoning to figure out on the basis of empirical evidence how to, to go from Brooklyn to Manhattan. That's nonsense. I mean, if you if you come up with that sort of broad definition of science, then, of course, everything is science and you kind of win by definition. But that's a sleight of hand. Uh, it's not it's not what most scientists will recognize as science. This is not physics. It's not biology. It's not you know, chemistry. So, so I think that Sam is a little too fast on a couple of accounts, but it does have a point. And that point is that moral philosophy or ethics uh, cannot be done and should not be done independently of empirical evidence. Mm. That I think is right. And the reason for that is because, in other words, you cannot do moral philosophy a priori like Kant did. For instance, one of the reasons I'm not particularly fond of the Kantian approach to uh, moral philosophy is because he, he sought, as a, as a, as a, as a good um, member of, you know, exponent of the Enlightenment, he sought to derive things from first principles, okay, to just sit down and think about it and say, okay, this is how we ought to behave. That cannot be done. Uh, Sam, I think, is right there. And why it cannot be done? Well, because morality is, in fact, in, in, to some extent, a human construction. It doesn't exist outside of the human world. It doesn't make any sense to say that lions are immoral, let's say, mm. or moral. Mm. That, 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 that category just doesn't apply. It's a, it's a mistake. And in fact, philosophers have described that, that mistake as a category mistake. You're applying a concept to a category of objects to which it doesn't belong. You, uh, morality is a human construction. However, it's not an arbitrary human construction. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a relativist. 
Um, and I know that Sam is particularly horrified by relativists. In fact, one of the reasons allegedly he wrote that book is precisely to counter the relativist position that, you know, morality is just a matter of opinion. Your opinion is just as good as mine. Well, no, it's not. Uh, it isn't. And the reason it isn't is because the point of morality, the point of ethics, I prefer to use the word ethics uh, because it, I think it's broader. But the point of ethics is, in fact, to give us guidance on how to live. Now, we just happen to be highly social animals. So getting guidance on how to live largely means getting guidance on how to interact with other people. And there are empirical facts that bound any possible answer, that constrain any possible answer to the good life. I don't think there's going to be a, a single answer to what, what a good life is for a human being. And that's, I think, where Sam goes wrong, because if it were actually a scientific problem, there would be a single answer there. Right? Um, there aren't multiple answers to whether uh, Saturn has rings or, or, or does it. it. It either does or it doesn't. That's the end of the story. There are no multiple answers to whether the general theory of relativity is correct or not. It's either correct or it isn't. It either describes the world or it isn't. But in the case of ethics, I do think that there are multiple answers. I mean, hopefully we're going to get to stoicism in a little bit. I think that's yes. one answer. But I also think that Buddhism is a perfectly viable answer. I think that there are other philosophical or religious traditions that are, in fact, more or less valid answers uh, to the question on, of how should I live my life. So there are multiple answers. That tells you right there that it's not a scientific, uh, you know, scientifically determinable uh, issue. But at the same time, there is also a number of answers that are completely misguided and they don't work because of human nature. Mm. Any answer, for instance, that emphasizes, uh, let's say, self in selfishness over cooperation, let's say Ayn Rand-style objectivism, I think it's a horrible answer. And the reason for that is because although it's true that human beings have a component of looking after themselves, for sure, right? We're, we're living organisms, so we, we tend to care about our own survival, uh, reproduction, thriving, etc. But we also understand that our survival and thriving are inextricably <laughs> interconnected to the survival and reproduction of other people. Mm. You just can't live as a human being uh, on your own. There is no such thing as a self-made man, despite, you know, propaganda, political propaganda of a certain, of a certain stripe. Um, we are inherently social. That's a fact of biology. And you, you better take into, whatever ethics you, you come up with, you better take that into consideration because otherwise your ethics is not going to work. Uh, let's move on to Stoicism, talking of uh, philosophical guides to leading the good life. As, as some of the listeners to this podcast know, because I talk about this often, I actually discovered, I really rediscovered Stoicism myself uh, about three years ago, when I was going through a very severe depression and one of the major factors I think that enabled me to not only pull myself out of that depression, but do so in such a way that I feel I will never return to such a, uh, um, to that, that level of depression, to that kind of nadir again, uh, was my discovery of stoicism through Darren Brown's account of it in his, in his book, Happy the subtitle of which is Why Absolutely Everything is Totally Fine. <laughs> and I've written a quite long review of it, which is also talks about uh, why that book was so valuable to me, which I'll link to in the show notes. But um, I recently read uh, your book, How to Be a Stoic, which is 
a beautifully concise and lucid um, and clearly written little book about stoicism, about how to use it, about why Epictetus is your personal favorite stoic. Um, And so some of these questions I know that they are answered within the book, but for the benefit of listeners, maybe you could start by telling us how you came to discover stoicism and what uh, why that particularly appealed to you as a philosophy? Yeah, that's a good question. And the answer is going to be actually something along the lines of what we talked about like a half an hour ago about how I got into philosophy, <laughs> which is uh, partly was a deliberate choice, uh, you know, sort of uh, reflective uh, choice. And, and uh, part of it was the result of happenstance. So what happened was that uh, about at the same time that I changed my career, that I was shifting my career, I also went through uh, a, again, fairly common midlife crisis for somebody in, you know, in his, at, the, at the time I was in my early 40s. Sometimes midlife crisis comes a little later. Mine was a little early, but nevertheless. So what happened was that in a span of a few months, a number of things uh, took place in my life that uh, each one of which a psychologist would tell you would cause a significant amount of stress. All of them simultaneously was a large amount of stress. So uh, my wife uh, of the time divorced me. Um, my father died and I changed job and I moved to a different place, uh, a different state. So in any one of those things, it's fairly stressful. When they happen essentially simultaneously over a, over a span of only a few months, uh, that kind of makes you pause and say, whoa, hold on a second here. What, what's going on? Now, um, that was the time that I was studying also philosophy in graduate school. And so um, the first thought was, okay, you are in the right place, my friend, because Yes, you want to be a philosopher of science, but at the same time, uh, you are studying general philosophy. You know, the first course that I took was on Plato, and the second one was on ethics. So surely, I, I said, there's going to be tools here to, to figure out uh, a new framework, a new way to move forward in, in your life. So I took deliberate, deliberate time to explore possibilities. And one of the very first, almost immediately, it was clear to me that the answer uh, was going to come from the area in philosophy, in, 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 uh, in moral philosophy, that is called virtual ethics. Virtual ethics is uh, the approach that was developed by the ancient Greeks and Romans, although one can argue, in fact, people have argued that the Buddhist tradition and the Confucian t- tradition are also types of virtual ethics. Um, but without going too far you know, afield, uh, within the Western uh, canon, the Western tradition, uh, the Greeks and Romans developed this thing called virtue ethics. The main idea behind virtue ethics is that ethics is in the business of figuring out what kind of life is worth living. And no matter what your specific answer, that answer is going to be uh, to go through an improvement, a, a conscious, mindful improvement of your character. It's called virtue uh, ethics because it's an ethics based on your own character, on the development of your virtues. The word that the Greeks used was arete, and arete actually means excellence. So the, the, the notion basically in virtue ethics is that you should, you should want to become the best human being you can possibly become. I said, all right, that sounds like a good idea. Um, let's go there. Let's, let's take a look. So the, when you start getting into virtue ethics, then the first thing you run into is Aristotle because he wrote the Nicomachean Ethics, which is one of the best books of the ancient uh, Greek canon uh, in, in, in general, and, uh, and it's specifically about virtue ethics. 
So I got into Aristotle. And th the thing is, Aristotle has a lot of interesting things to say. However, he also he thinks that a, um, a, a, good, a life worth living, a flourishing, life of flourishing is one in which you focus, as I said, on improving your character. That's the virtue part. But also, you have to have a number of external conditions that are met. You have to have to be you know, somewhat smart, uh, somewhat educated, uh, more or less healthy, more or less wealthy, and even, he says, a little bit good-looking. And I said, well, I'm screwed. That's, there's no, that's, not, that's too many criteria. That's not going to happen. That's not going to work. Um, it's a very aristocratic view of the good life, mm -hmm. which is not surprising mm -hmm. because Aristotle's uh, father was the, the, the court physician uh, at the, um, for, for Philip of Macedonia. So, you know, this, this was a fairly well-to-do family. Of course, he thought that wealth and good looks and all that sort of stuff was, was important. So I said, all right, that's an interesting beginning, but it doesn't do it for me. The next, I went to Epicureanism. Epicureanism is also a type of virtue ethics. And by the way, I should say right from the get-go that Epicureanism, contrary to popular misperception, is not the sex, drugs, and rock and roll of philosophy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in, fact, in fact, Epicurus said that, yeah, we should pursue moderate pleasures. The emphasis was on moderate. And, you know, things like simple food and, you know, walking in the garden and, you know, enjoying your evenings with friends, that kind of stuff. But mostly, he said, a good life consists in reduction or avoidance of pain, particularly emotional pain. Okay? In fact, he defined, Epicurus defined the highest pleasure as a lack of pain. Now, that sounds all good, except that one of the recipes, one of the, the fundamental aspects of the, for the, of the Epicurean recipe is that you should stay away from social and political involvement. Because, as we all know, those are emotionally painful. Okay? Right. And, yes. and I said, well, you know, you got a point there. They are, but I can't see myself living a life without social political involvement. It's like that would not be a meaningful life as far as I'm concerned. So I said, oh, too bad for Epicurus. So I was in that ballpark, right? And one day, and here, here comes the serendipitous part. Uh, one day I was checking my Twitter account, uh, my Twitter feed, and I saw this thing that said, help us celebrate Stoic Week. And I thought, what the hell is Stoic Week? And, and why would anybody want to celebrate the Stoics? And then I remembered, I said, wait a minute, the Stoics? So that's Marcus Aurelius. And of course, I read the meditations in college. Uh, and I said, the Stoics, that's Seneca. And I, transla I actually translated Seneca from Latin when I was in high school. So I said, wow, I never thought actually those, those two guys even going together, let alone you know, being representatives of the same underlying philosophy of life. And then I remember also that Stoicism is another type of virtue ethics. So I said, well, let me look. Let's sign up for Stoic Week, which, by the way, it's going to come up um, in, uh, late in, in, the, in, the, in the fall, I think in October or November. Every year, it's usually in October or November. Great. Now, I'll, put Week, a, I'll put a link to it yes, down in the show you. notes. And uh, Stoic Week basically correspond, uh, consists in this. You, you sign up, uh, you actually fill out a questionnaire, a couple of questionnaires about where you are in life, you know, how content you are with your life, what are your problems, that sort of stuff. And then you download a, a certain number of materials that are about the history of Stoicism, about Stoic philosophy, you know, the, the concept, the, the precepts of Stoic philosophy, and then some readings uh, about Stoicism. And then what you do is they, they actually assign exercises. Every day you do an, a different kind of meditation or a different kind of exercise. And then at the end of the week, you fill out the same questionnaire, sort of an exit questionnaire to compare, you know, to, to see for yourself how you did. 
And uh, so I signed up and it immediately clicked. I mean, I never felt anything like that when I was looking at other possible philosophies of life. In fact, the very first Stoic, you mentioned Epictetus, the very first Stoic that I read during Stoic Week was Epictetus. And if I still remember the very first uh, thing that I read by Epictetus, it was right at the beginning of the Discourses uh, of Epictetus, volume one, book one of the Discourses of Epictetus. Near the beginning, he says, um, so, you know, yes, we, we have to die. One of, one of these days I have to die, but it doesn't look like it's going to be today. So I'll deal with that later. Right now I'm hungry, so I'm going to go out for lunch. And I said, wait, what? what is, who is this guy who, um, on the one hand, he's telling his students something actually interesting as he goes on and elaborate on, on the theme of death. He's saying something very interesting and very cogent about death, but at the same time, he's also kind of no-nonsense. And he says, you know, you're probably not going to die today, so let's, let's talk about something else. You also have other urges, for instance, going for lunch. He mm. also has a very you know, interesting sense of humor, sometimes even kind of sarcasm. Uh, at some point, for instance, one of his students apparently got to his lecture uh, room and, and complained about the fact that he had a running nose. And the petito says, okay, well, you have a running nose, just wipe your nose. And the student says, yeah, but you know, why do I have a running nose? Why, why is the world such that there is a run, run, things like running noses? And Epictetus looks at it and like, what do you want? You want to change the structure of the universe because you have a, you're inconvenienced by a running nose? Well, I'm sorry, my friend. The universe has to be taken for what it is. And you have a solution to the running nose. Wipe yourself uh, and don't waste your time um, you know, complaining about how things ought to be because that's nonsense. So that immediately struck me as practical, interesting, approachable, uh, just about the kind of stuff that I was looking uh, uh, for. And sure enough, I, after Stoic Week, I committed to practicing Stoicism for another couple of months until the end of the year. And then after that, for a full uh, year. And then uh, now here we are, you know, almost six years later, and we're still talking about it. So what are the practices that you, uh, what do you practically do as a Stoic? What are the what are the kind of practices that you adhere to that you picked up? Yeah, so that's a great question. So there are there are a number of practices out there. Um, my friend Greg Lopez and I have actually written a whole book about this called The Handbook for New Stoics, which I think in the UK actually has a different title. It's, it's called Living Like a Stoic. Um, and we put together 52 exercises, which are all of them are called from the um, ancient literature. They come from Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, and some of the other Stoics. Uh, but they've also been all updated to, you know, keeping in mind the evidence from modern science, particularly cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive science, and, you know, things like that, because we know that some of these things actually work. Stoicism uh, uh, was uh, highly influential at the beginning of cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, therapy uh, rational emotive behavioral therapy, and all that sort of stuff in the, in the early 60s. So now, uh, I have my own favorite set of exercises that I do, uh, that I do on a regular basis, and I, I can perhaps, you know, talk about a couple of those, two or three of those. One uh, that I find very useful, and again, there is very good empirical evidence that, in fact, it is useful, is the philosophical diary. Uh, the philosophical diary basically takes inspiration from Marcus Aurelius' meditations. You can think of the meditations as a philosophical diary. Uh, the emperor was talking to himself there, and he was reminding himself of what he was doing you know, right and what he was doing wrong and how to improve, that sort of stuff. It's a, self, it's a diary of self-reflection, critical self-reflection. 
And the way I do it is uh, pretty much every night, you know, before going to bed for a few minutes, I sit down you know, my my iPad and I start writing about thoughts about some stuff that had happened during the day, particularly um, ethically salient stuff. So how I interacted with people, uh, for instance, you know, maybe with some of my students or with a friend or a colleague or whatever, or my wife and so on. And um, uh, typically I structure it this way. I ask myself three questions and this, this actually follows a template that you find in um, Seneca at the end of this wonderful book called On Anger. And the three questions are, what did I do wrong? What did I do right? And what could I do better? The first question, what did I do wrong, is not meant to indulge in regret or self-flagellation or anything like that, because the Stoics believe that, of course, the, the past is outside of your control. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't go back and change it. So in, uh, indulging in regret, it's a waste of emotional energy. Um, however, you do want to learn from your past. <laughs> you want to learn from your mistakes. So writing them down, uh, especially writing them down in a, a second or third person. So I write my diary as if I were running to a friend in the second mm. person, just mm. like Marcus Aurelius does. Uh, you know, I say, well, you did this this morning. So what did, you do, what did you think about that sort of stuff? And there's evidence from modern psychology that that actually helps uh, putting some distance, some emotional distance between uh, what you did and the way you think about it. Because the notion, again, is not to indulge in the emotional res response, but to uh, think analytically about it, about what you did. And again, the point is just to keep in mind, okay, well, that was not a good reaction. So let me keep it in mind. So the next time I'm not going to try to stay away from that. The second question, what did you do right, um, uh, is kind of serves the purpose of, of uh, establishing another reference point. The, the first reference point is the stuff you want to get away from, the kind of behaviors you want to, you want to eventually uh, you know, move away from. But there is also behaviors that you want to embrace and cultivate. And so whatever, whenever you do something right, you actually should write it down and pay attention to it because you need to orient, reorient yourself into that direction uh, and away from the, sort of, from the mistakes. And then the third question, you know, what could I have done differently? That's because as much as we all think that our lives are incredibly varied and interesting and all that sort of stuff, they're actually fairly repetitive. I mean, if you think mm. about it, with few exceptions, you know, you get up in the morning, you go to work, well, if, unless there is a pandemic, but um, interact with the same people, do the same things. You come home, you see the same people, do the same things. During the weekend, mm -hmm. you go out with friends, you do the same things, you interact with the same people. So with some variation, of course, but pretty much we find ourselves over and over in our lives in the same sort of general situations. And so if you paid attention to instances where you didn't react well to a particular situation, you didn't do well. Let's say, for instance, let me give you an example. Oh, I hosted some people the other night for dinner. Uh, this is hypothetical. I'm not hosting anybody in the, in the middle of a pandemic. But um, I hosted some of that. And then, then, then I started talking too much and I kind of took over the conversation. And it was pretty clear to me that some of my friends were kind of bored or, or, or irritated by this. Well, that's one of the things you did wrong. Well, what can you do right next time? Because you're probably going to have people over for dinner again and again and again. So how can you prepare yourself mentally so that not to repeat that mistake? Well, you can say, look, um, how about you, you, you start by being a little bit more mindful and uh, you follow the advice uh, of uh, Zeno of Citium, who was the founder of Stoicism, who said that um, the reason you have uh, one mouth and two ears is because you should be spending twice as much time listening to people than talking. 
Mm. So, okay, so time yourself the next time. So make a point of <laughs> talking in a little bit and then shut up for at least twice as long as, uh, as, as you've talked and see how, see how it works. So, so this is the kind of thing. So this is one exercise, the, the, the evening diary. Another exercise that I like quite a bit and I find effective, and again, there is actually empirical evidence that it is effective, is the um, exercises in mild self-deprivation. So these are things like fasting, for instance, or abstaining from drinking alcohol or, or abstaining from shopping, for instance, or things like that. And these are found both in the Stoics and actually in Socrates. My, my first version and Socrates was a, a major inspiration for the Stoics. My, my favorite version of this is what I call the, um, the walk through the mall. So from time to time, I actually go to a shopping center or to an area in New York where there is a lot of shops. And then very deliberately and slowly, I examine everything that is on offer uh, in a number of shops and then walk out without having bought anything. And I mm. tell myself uh, exactly what Socrates, Socrates apparently told himself after doing something like this in the Athenian Agora, in the, in the open market. He went through it and he said, huh, I didn't realize there were so many things I didn't need. And it's, it's a great exercise in self-restraint, essentially, right? Because we live yes. in a consumerist society where we're constantly bombarded with this message that the only way to be happy is if you buy a new car, a new television, a new iPhone, a new blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And it turns out there's very strong empirical evidence in social psychology that that's simply not true. Possessions, objects don't make you happy. Uh, what, what you do if you start buying a bunch of things, uh, you know, the, the, one of the phrases that I discovered in America when I moved to the United States, which always sounded uh, fairly ridiculous, and now that I practice stoicism is really sounds to me like nonsense, is retail therapy. Right. This notion that, <laughs> right? This notion that if you feel bad, then just buy yourself something and you feel better. It's like, no, <laughs> no. If the, you, want, you want to start thinking about why do you feel bad and what you can do about it constructively and in the long run, not just go out and buy something. And uh, in fact, modern psychologists will tell you that if you do retail therapy, all you're doing is you set in motion what they call the hedonic treadmill. The hedonic treadmill, uh, you know, hedonism, of course, is, you know, pleasure uh, consists in this. So, so you buy something to make you feel better, like, you know, a shiny new smartphone, for instance. Uh, and then you look at it, you know, for a few days, you're very excited. It's like, look at that, my new phone. And then, of course, you get used to it. This is just normal human psychology. Uh, the, the object loses its shine, typically very quickly, <laughs> a matter of days uh, or weeks, certainly not months or years. And, uh, and then you have to buy something else because now you want the, the, another high. And, and then so you go back out and you get something else. Oh, that, look at that, my new brand, you know, brand new television. And then that one gets boring after a few days. And then you, get, you have to keep going up. So you are on a hedonic treadmill. You're not getting anywhere, but you're running fast and you're spending a lot of money. Mm. And uh, so this, this exercise, this stoic exercise, is basically to counter the hedonic treadmill and to uh, make you refocus on things that actually matter. Now, some of the self-deprivation stuff has to do, in fact, it's, the exercise should be done focusing on the kinds of things that are problematic for you. For instance, um, I, although I'm in a fairly you know, good health and I, I've been going to the gym for years now and I tend to eat fairly, in a fairly healthy manner, I do have a tendency to overindulge uh, on, on food. And that's why one of my favorite exercises is fasting. 
Uh, so once a week, every week, once a week, I fast for a day. And the reason for that is because it reminds me constantly that, you know, sure, uh, food is pleasurable, but you don't need that much. You don't need to do it on a regular basis. You don't need to overindulge. Occasionally, sure, but not on a regular basis. And in fact, you can, I can go now to a day or sometimes two days of fasting without any problem. Uh, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a, much of, a, of an effort. In fact, that's one of the reasons I probably should make it you know, vary with some other exercises. When, once it becomes too easy, then it's not effective anymore. Uh, but what I'm saying is you should uh, pick the kinds of things that are problematic uh, and and use those as the basis for exercises in uh, in self deprivation. And then let me tell you just the third one, um, and uh, and then we can sort of resume the regular discussion. But uh, but just give an idea to your listeners of what the the practice actually uh, mm, consists mm. of. One of my fa- favorite, which we're actually going to do with my wife um, uh, this coming weekend, uh, is the sunrise meditation. You find this in Marcus Aurelius, uh, uh, and he describes actually how to do it. And apparently this is a tradition that, that precedes the Stoics. It goes back to the Pythagoreans in the 5th and 6th century BCE. And um, basically this consists of, you know, you set the alarm, you check when, your, when sunrise is, you set your alarm about an hour before sun, sunrise, you make yourself coffee, and then you walk to the nearest place where you can see the horizon, if you're that lucky. New York is pretty difficult. Um, or at the very least where you can see the, the, the buildings are the, at the lowest so that you can see the sun rise or, or shortly thereafter. And then you just wait and look. Um, don't look straight into the, the sun. Don't do like President Trump did uh, during the last <laughs> eclipse. That's a bad idea. Um, but, uh, you know, but you look in the general direction. And you stay there until the sun is actually is completely above the horizon. Um, and then you just go home. Now, why would you want to do that? The... The notion is to remind yourself that you're part of a much larger, almost eternal reality. The sun has been rising for literally billions of years, right? Always the same, uh, never changes, regularly. And, and we are an integral part of that system. According to the Stoics, we are deeply interconnected by, you know, in this web of cause and effect. You might think that the stars have nothing to do with you, but think about it this way. First of all, the very reason we're alive is because there is sun energy, uh, you know, energy from the sun coming to earth. Otherwise, uh, we would not be able to, to, to live. And also, as one of my uh, favorite um, uh, scientific role models, Carl Sagan, uh, used to say, we're literally made of stardust, right? The, the, the chemical elements inside our bodies were forged in a supernova explosion near our solar system. So they were, they, were, they were literally made of stuff that was made inside, inside of stars. And so this kind of stuff, this kind of meditation may seem like a waste of time. You know, why are you doing that sort of thing? But it reconnects you with a larger, a larger reality and it puts things in perspective. If you spend half an hour, 45 minutes, just meditating on the fact that you're part of, of this macrocosm uh, and, and you're embedded in nature and all that sort of stuff, then all of a sudden the problems you're having at the office or you know, whatever, they sound a little small. They, they, they get really, you know, put into the right size, brought down to the right size. And a bonus of this kind of um, uh, meditation is that then you have a long day ahead of yourself um, and therefore you get even more productive. <laughs> I love that idea, and I I think I will um, uh, I will do it sometime. And actually, I can do it just sitting in our own garden, 
um, the oh, garden lovely. faces yeah. southeast. So when it when it gets a little warmer, perhaps, yes. or when we're having a warm <laughs> day, I will go and sit and uh, meditate in the garden. I love that idea. Um, I can't see the horizon from there, but I can certainly see it getting lighter. Um, I want to return to the to Stoic thought more generally, and I, there are two two points that I want to touch upon. Um, I say that now, and in fact, I'm jotting it down because it's always very dangerous to say that you have two points you want to touch on, or to give a certain <laughs> number of points because you might forget later. But the first, the first one is, for me, I think the most useful concept in Stoicism is the Stoic fork. Um, that's a fork, not not the utensil, but a fork in a road <laughs> to alternate right. paths. I yes. think that you call it the dichotomy of control. Right. Um, and um, it's so you should focus on the things that are under your control, which is your own uh, words and actions. Or I'm, I'm a Parsi, I'm a Zoroastrian, so we also have this idea that it's good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and worry less about everything else that is outside your control. And that includes um, that includes how much money you have, for example, because that's dependent on other people on inheriting money from other people or on other people giving you money or buying your goods and services. So your money is dependent on other people's actions. And I think the pandemic has really brought home to us how much yeah. uh, money is dependent on every on a web of connections on everyone right. else's actions and choices. Um, and of course, also your reputation, um, your fame, your popularity, whether people like you, whether you're loved, all of those kinds of things are also dependent on other people's thoughts and feelings um, over which you have no direct control. But one thing that does bother me slightly um and I have to sort of compartmentalize and put it out of my mind is that I'm also not a believer in free will. Mm-hmm. I don't see any point at which um, uh, at, at which free will might be situated. Right. Um, and therefore, the, in a very real way, you might say that your thoughts and words and actions are not under your control either. Yeah. However, they feel subjectively as if they're under my control. I mean, I live and, and think and behave as if they were under my control. So um, I, I still use that as a guideline. I try to calm my anxiety by returning constantly to this stoic fork, mm-hmm. which is this under my control or not under my control? Right. So, so let me address both questions. Uh, let's start with the economy of control and then we'll get to the free will issue. Mm. Uh, first of all, I actually don't like the term dichotomy of control. I prefer the other term that you're using, uh, the stoic fork. Uh, unfortunately, it looks like we're kind of stuck with the economy of control. This, the, I think the term was introduced by Bill Irvine in one of his early books on, on stoicism. And uh, it kind of, you know, it, it's stuck and, and I don't think we're going to get rid of it. But it does 
land in, itself immediately to all sorts of misunderstandings. Like people may say, well, what do you mean I'm not in control of my money, for instance? Or what do you mean I'm in control of my thoughts? You know, that sort of stuff. So, so I don't think the word control is quite right here. In fact, Epictetus doesn't use that word. <laughs> um, uh, the of control, uh, let's, let me rephrase it. The Stoic fork goes actually ba- back to the beginning of Stoicism. This you can find it in the early uh, Stoic writings, but the most famous rendition of it is right at the beginning of the Enchiridion of uh, Epictetus' this, uh, uh, Manual for a Happy Life. And he puts it this way, depending on the translation, of course, there's, there's different translations of it, but he says, you know, some things are up to you and other things are not up to you. And then he says, he makes two, he provides two lists, the kind of things that are up to you and the kind of things that are not up to you. I would, the way I would put it is for some things, the buck stops with you and for other things, it doesn't. And here's what I mean. So let's take a look at what Epictetus says, puts in the first category, things that are up to me, right? Things that are up to us. Basically, those reduce only and exclusively to your considered judgments, your endorsed values, and your decisions to act or not to act. That's it. There's nothing else, according to Epictetus, that it's really up to you. Not even most of your thoughts are up to you, because a lot of your thoughts are actually autonomic. They come to your mind without, you know, without your prompting of anything. There are a lot of our thinking, as we know today, but the Stoics kind of intuited early on, a lot of our thinking is actually below the level of consciousness. So we don't control that for sure. We don't have anything to say about that. So what does it mean to be, uh, that, that, that my judgments, my, my endorsed opinions and my decisions to act or not to act are up to me? Well, let's put it this way. If I were to, to say to you, um, you know, I, I think actually racism is a, is a good philosophy of life, okay? You would say, what the hell are you talking about? And you would rightly argue with me because you'd say, well, that's your opinion, your, your endorsed opinion. This is something you're telling me you believe in, okay? And therefore, I need to argue with you. It's your responsibility. I can say, well, but look, I read things and people told me and, you know, I've been influenced by this guy or that other guy, or I read that book or that, but ultimately it doesn't matter what the influences were on me. If I state as a considered opinion, racism is a good philosophy of life, that's on me. The buck stops with me. I can be, I can be reasonably challenged because that is my endorsed opinion um, or my endorsed values. If I decide to act by thinking about something, so not, well, I'm not talking about, again, instinctive actions. You know, if you throw a baseball to me uh, and I catch it automatically, uh, that's a reflex. That's, I didn't really think consciously and deliberately about doing what I was doing. Uh, so that's not the stuff that we're talking about. But if I decide uh, to, you know, enroll in graduate school in, uh, in philosophy, for instance, that's a deliberate decision to act in a certain way. And I, it, the, the buck stops with me. It, it is up to me. It's not up to nobody else. I can't say, oh, my my parents made me do it, or my friends made me do it. It doesn't matter what your parents said, what your friends said, this is your decision. Now, go to the other side of the, of the fork, to the other branch of the fork, the stuff that is not up to us. Uh, this includes, uh, as you say, money, wealth, uh, health, uh, reputation, uh, job, and all that sort of stuff. Let's take health, since we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? So it's particularly appropriate. Um, in what sense is health, my health, my health not up to me? Well, obviously, I can do certain things about, about it, right? I can eat uh, you know, in a healthy way. I can go to the gym. 
I can go to the doctor to practice, uh, you know, preventive medicine, uh, which is better than just going there when, when the thing has already happened. Um, in the case of the pandemic, I can, of course, practice social distancing, you know, be careful when I go out for grocery shopping, let's say, you know, wipe everything, don't touch anything, blah, blah. I can do all those things, right? Those are obviously all things that I can do. But ultimately, the outcome that is my health is actually not up to me. It depends on external factors. I can do all of those things and still catch the virus. I can do all of those things and still be run over by a car uh, and go to the hospital. I can do all those things and still get cancer and so on and so forth, right? So it's not that I cannot influence things, just like your opinions are obviously influenced by other people, but ultimately they are your opinions. Uh, Your health, your career, your wealth, and so on and so forth, those are things that you can influence, but ultimately they depend on external factors, either other people or happenings of life, such as a pandemic or, or, or whatever. And so... Epictetus' advice there is, therefore, okay, once we know this, once we understand this, that there's this dichotomy, this fork, um, then what you should do in order to live a good life is to focus on the first, you know, the stuff that is really up to you, because that's where your agency is maximized, if you want to put it that way, and take the rest as it comes. Develop an attitude of equanimity toward outcomes. Uh, Develop the attitude of what I would say is an adult human being. As an adult human being, you know that sometimes things in life are going to go your way and other times they're not. And since you're not a child, you accept that as a fact of life and you don't throw a tantrum every time that things don't go your way because that's how children behave, not as an adult human being. Um, another way to, to uh, put this thing, in, which is very practical, is to say that we should, that the advice here is to internalize our goals. So we have a tendency to think about outcomes, to worry about outcomes, outcomes, not about intentions. For instance, let's say that I'm going to go for a, a job interview tomorrow morning. Well, the natural thing for me to do is to worry about the outcome. You know, will I get the job or will I not? But of course, the outcome is not up to me in the sense that a big deal uses. Um, I can work on it, but ultimately it depends on the interviewer, you know, whoever is interviewing me for the job. And that his decision or her decision will depend on a bunch of other factors, including who my competition is, which I certainly have no control over, um, uh, his own priorities and, and preferences, um, maybe the fact that you know, he's, he was stressed out in the, the, this morning because uh, you know, he had a fight with his wife. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that I have no, absolutely no control over, and they will affect the outcome of the interview. So what should I do instead? I should internalize my goals. My goal should not be to get the job, because that's not up to me. My goal should be to prepare my best uh, for the job interview, focus during the job interview, dress appropriately for the interview, put uh, forth the best resume that I can, all that sort of stuff, right? Because those are all up to me. Those are, in fact, things where my agency is maximized. So if one doesn't like the notion of control, which, as I said, I, I do think it's problematic, think in terms of where can you maximize your agency? Where can you actually do things that have uh, an effect? And then the rest, you cultivate explicitly ahead of time this uh, attitude of equanimity. You know, sometimes you're going to win, sometimes you're not going to win. So that's the way I think, and, and you're absolutely right that these, the, the, the Stoic fork is arguably the most practical and most useful aspect of Stoic philosophy. Um, and you can turn it into a practice, by the way, with, um, with my friend Greg Lopez, we begin the book with an exercise based on the Stoic Fork. 
And basically we say, we, we go through a, a hypothetical situations just like the one that I described about the job interview. And we say, okay, before you get even there, just draw on a piece of paper or on a, on a spreadsheet, uh, two columns on the left, write down everything you need, you think it's up to you, where your agency is maximized. And on the right side, uh, write down everything where you, that you think it's not up to you, where your agency is actually minimized. And then pay attention to the first column and uh, prepare yourself for whatever outcome comes out in terms of the second column. So now we should probably go to free will. What do you think? <laughs> yes, if, you'd, if you want to talk about free will briefly. And then mm-hmm. I think that one thing that we haven't touched on is that this, general misunderstanding that stoicism is about being Spock-like and unfeeling. And I think that we should, uh, we should maybe end by talking about that misunderstanding. Yeah. Sounds great. Okay. So now that we got a better understanding uh, of the stoic fork, then, then now let's go back to the underlying metaphysical question, which is free will. And you say, you know, you don't believe in free will. Um, Now there are two Two ways of not believing in free will, as you probably know. One is hard determinism, uh, a la, a la Samaris, in fact. And the other one is uh, compatibilism, a la Daniel Dennett. And I am a compatibilist, and so were the Stoics. And here's the difference between the, between the two. So um, Samaris often presents this picture of, um, you know, this visual analogy of human beings being sort of puppets that are moved by the forces of the universe, Right. And uh, compatibilists think that that's, an, that's the incorrect uh, picture of the world, even though determinism is probably true. We should, I, should, I should bracket all this discussion by saying that it is actually not a given that the universe is deterministic. The answer to that question will come from, eventually, if it does come, it will come from fundamental physics. And right now, the most fundamental theory we have is quantum mechanics. And people don't know whether quantum mechanics tells us that the universe is deterministic or not. Because it turns out that the equations of quantum mechanics are deterministic, meaning that, you know, once you put a certain input into the equation, you always get the same exact output. Uh, But the phenomena described by quantum mechanics, such as uh, radioactive decay, for instance, appear to be fundamentally random. And physicists themselves tend to be agnostic about this this question. Uh, We need a more fundamental theory, which is the current uh, goal of of um, certain areas of physics, research in physics. So right now, uh, even when people say, like, like, like Aries, jump into the, under, under the thing and say, oh, clearly the unit is deterministic. Well, there's no clear anything about it. It actually is not clear at all. Um, but but let's assume that, that it is. It, yeah. that's, that's a slightly separate question from the free will, though, right? Because you also don't have control over something if it's happening at random. Correct. Um, that's right. And that's why I think that actually the determinism thing is a, is a red herring, as they say in philosophy, right? It's actually irrelevant. Whether the universe is deterministic or random, uh, the question is what kind of notion of free will or not can you come up with? But to say, oh, we don't have free will because the universe is deterministic, I think is both scientifically incorrect, because we don't know, uh, and also philosophically irrelevant, because uh, the compatibilists have actually argued that... Um, uh, determinism is necessary for free will. Otherwise, you don't have will, you have random motion, right? So um, now let me go back to, however, the difference between hard determinism and compatibilism. One really nice way, I think, in which the Stoics put the, put the, the point uh, goes back to Chrysippus. Chrysippus was the third head of the Stoa, 
so the ancient school, the ancient Stoic school. So we're talking very early Stoicism. You know, it was alive in the, you know, during the, the, the third century uh, BCE. And Chrysippus was a great logician. In fact, uh, unfortunately, we lost essentially all of his books, uh, except for a few fragments that are cited by other authors. But um, uh, Peter Habermson, who uh, wrote um, a series of books called uh, A History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps, has actually argued in, uh, in his book on Hellenistic philosophy that um, if we had even a fraction of the books that Chrysippus wrote, Chrysippus would be just as famous and influential philosopher as Plato and Aristotle. Uh, because, you know, he, he was the guy, the guy that put, um, uh, you know, logic on, uh, on a firm foundation, more so actually than even Aristotle himself. So, um, you know, Stoic logic was the cutting edge logic until the, the end of the 19th century, to, to, just to give you uh, a reference point. But at any rate, uh, Chrysippus came up with this interesting notion, to his inter- interesting analogy or uh, metaphor to explain the concept um, of free will, of will that the Stoics have. They didn't use the word free will. In fact, the word that the Stoics use is prohyresis, and prohyresis is Greek that gets translated usually as volition or, or, or simply will. And volition, interestingly, is also the term that psychologists use uh, when they describe the ability of human beings to make decisions. So we're talking about really volition. The word free will, we should stay away from because it's obviously loaded. Because the term free immediately leads you to ask, well, free from what, right? And, and it's just a bad way of, of, of uh, looking at the problem, I think. So here's what Chrysippus said. He says, consider a cylinder, right? May, Maybe made of metal, let's say. And you put this cylinder on a surface, on a flat surface, and you push it. And he says, what happens if you push it? And of course, the cylinder is going to roll, right? And then Chrysippus says, so why does the cylinder roll? And the intuitive answer is, well, because I just pushed it. But then Chrysippus says, not exactly. Part of the reason, part of the cause that underlies the movement of the cylinder is your push. That's for sure. That's the external cause. But the cylinder also rolls because of internal causes, because it is structured as a cylinder. If it were structured as a cube, it wouldn't roll. It would either not move at all or it would, uh, you know, pop one, one step at a time, but you certainly not roll. Cubes don't roll. So he says the answer, therefore, to the question of why does the cylinder roll is a combination of external causes, the push, and internal causes, the nature of the cylinder. The analogy with human beings is that whenever we make a decision we make, uh, to act or not to act, whenever we do one of those things that Epictetus says are up to us, this is the result of a number of causes, not just two, but a number of causes, some of which are external, um, you know, other people's opinions, other people's influences, environmental influences, you know, the virus and all that sort of stuff, and some of which are internal. And the internal ones are uh, part and parcel of our ability as human beings of making decisions, of reflecting on things and making decisions. In other words, we're not Sam's puppets because we are, we are not just in the, in the thralls of, the external, of external forces. We have internal mechanisms, and those internal mechanisms are inextricable and unsepar- inseparable part and parcel of the cosmic web of cause and effect. So for a Stoic, what it means to exercise your priorities, to exercise your will, your volition, is precisely that you're trying to improve um, your internal mechanisms. You know, that part of the, cause of, uh, the web of cause effect that is internal, you're trying to improve it. How is this possible? The, that's where the disanalogy 
happens with the cylinder. The cylinder is just a cylinder. It doesn't have any power, internal powers to change its internal structure. But human beings do. Reason is recursive. Reason can be applied to itself. You can think about what you're doing, why you're doing it, and then change your mind about stuff. And therefore, you can improve your character, you can improve your decision-making ability, you can improve your uh, judgment. So in that sense, that's up to us. Not in the sense that we are somehow free from the web of cause and effect, because that would make our volition into a miracle, right? Uh, mm. Which is, by the way, where the word free will comes from. Free will is a, is a Christian invention. And the Christians need free will uh, because if we don't have free will, then it would be really difficult for them to explain why the, the world sucks. You know, if we, if, we, if we have, if there is a God that is all powerful, all good and all, and all uh, knowledge, uh, knowing, then why the hell is, is the world such a you know, place of suffering and so on and so forth? Then it's his fault. Um, and so the Christians, in order to avoid that conclusion, deploy what it's called the free will defense. They say, well, no, it's that, that God gave, gave us free will. And basically, it's our fault that the world is, is a, a piece of crap. Um, but outside of Christian theology, the notion of free will doesn't make any sense. No modern philosopher, in fact, very few ancient philosophers actually went there. Um, um, Lucippus, who was uh, one of the first atomists, he was a pre-Socratic philosopher. Um, and the atomists were the same kind of you know, philosophers that eventually led to Epicurus. Uh, Lucippus also was a determinist. He, he, he concluded already you know, in the 6th century BCE that, of course, we are part of nature, we're embedded in nature, and so whatever we do is the result of natural causes. It's, what else could it be, right? Um, but when you yourself say, so now let me, let me get, bring it back to what you were saying. So wh when, when you say, you know, I try to do this and I try to do that, or I try to stay away from this or stay away from that, that's all we're talking about. You're mm -hmm. using your volition. You're using your human ability, which is of the same kind as, biologically speaking, as the volition of any other animal, your cat, your dog, the, the, your, your insects in the, in the yard, they have the same ability to make decisions. They are, in fact, animals are decision-making machines in a sense, except that our ability is far more sophisticated and it has this recursivity. And it is this recursivity, this ability to apply to itself that really distinguishes from most of the animal world we don't know if there are other species capable of recursive thought. Maybe there are, maybe there aren't. If there are, they belong to those, you know, some other social primates, perhaps, or to some marine mammals. We, we have no idea. We, it's, hard to, it's hard to tell. But we have that ability. And so the whole point of Stoic philosophy is use it. You know, what, what Epictetus, you can understand Epictetus' philosophy as, as essentially aiming at one goal and one goal only, to improve your prohiresis, to improve your ability to make decisions. That seems hardly a goal to be, you know, sort of not, to, not, to, not to embrace or, or a goal to sort of criticize, like who, who doesn't want to make better decisions mm -hmm. in their lives? Mm. So um, I, one, one last question, I guess. Um, actually, I have two questions which have both come from Twitter. And one of them, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of answer it myself <laughs> and see if you agree with me. Um, <laughs> my friend, <Yep. laughs> my friend Brian Earp asks um, about the, some of the main ways that the Stoics have been misunderstood or misrepresented in their own time and today. And um, 
answering the second part of that, I think that the most frequent misrepresentation or that I believe is a misrepresentation that I encounter is the idea that stoicism is about being emotionally cold, um, about a kind of Spock-like denial of feeling and attempt to eliminate feeling. And that therefore it's very self-centered, uh, selfish. It's about not having compassion, not caring. And um, as I was um, writing on Facebook before we came on this call, I think of it rather differently. I think of it as a, as a way of building emotional resilience. And it's that resilience that enables you to really commit to loving relationships with other people, to emotional investment in, in the welfare of other people, because it give, it helps you to develop the confidence that if you are not loved in return, or if, or if you, if the other person is harmed, or if you lose them, or if there's some other tragic event, that you will not be destroyed by it. And the reason why Spock and the Vulcans, of course, developed this method of developed this method of repressing their emotions um, in Star Trek is because the early Vulcans had such strong emotions that they almost killed each killed each other. Um, they almost destroyed their planet and um, sent their species extinct because they they were. Um, they were subject to such violent outbursts of anger. So in a sense, the Stoic philosophy is a way of avoiding both those extremes, both the kind of devastating emotion and this self-protective urge to um, be so afraid of feeling the negative emotions, so afraid of loss and heartbreak and those kinds of things that you don't, uh, you just avoid deep committed deep emotional commitments to begin with yeah i think i think that's about right i mean the, the stoic ideal in a sense is like um you know what what you want to develop is the attitude of a doctor in an emergency room so ideally a doc a good doctor in an emergency room is somebody who is compassionate who understands that there is human real human being suffering there um but who doesn't get so emotionally involved that he's going to get paralyzed uh, you know, it, that, that he's not, not going to be able to make a decision, not, not going to be able to do triage um, because he's so emotionally involved and so emotionally distraught by the whole, by the whole thing. Or um, if you want another example, I have a, a good friend who for many years worked for an organization called the International Rescue Committee. And this is a dis disaster relief organization. And I asked her uh, several times, I said, you know, how did you keep it together when you are in a refugee camp with 20,000 people and people are starving or dying of diseases, you know, what, how is it possible you're not sort of emotionally destroyed? And she came up with the analogy of the doctor. She said, well, I, I try to behave as a, as a doctor. I am cognizant that these are human beings and I care about them, but I try not to get overwhelmed emotionally. Otherwise, I, I just, you know, curve up in a ball and, and, and start crying. And that's, that's it. That's the end of the story. So, where does these, um, I think you're right that the, the um, modern sort of distortion of stoicism stereotype comes out of, uh, you know, it's, it's about those, it's along those lines. I've, I think it's interesting that all of the major uh, Hellenistic schools had names that actually are used today in modern English and in all, in all cases 
those terms have been twisted or altered to, rep, to mean a stereotype of the philosophy. So Stoics are represented, you know, in modern common language means uh, a stiff upper lip and suppression of emotion, which is not what the Stoics were, were about. Um, modern Ep Epicureanism in modern sense means, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, which is not what the Epicureans were about, although they were hedonists. Um, cynic today means somebody who doesn't, you know, who, who always says no, and it's like it's it's very it has a very negative connotation, uh, you know, attitude toward the world. But the ancient cynics actually were uh, very much into uh, minimalist lifestyle, and you know, going around so just reminding people that they were not doing their best uh, about about life and helping others. And then skeptic uh, today, a skeptic, somebody who, again doesn't sort of believe much. And the ancient skeptics uh, were, on the other hand, you know, careful about holding on to beliefs uh, in a light way because human knowledge is, fa is fallible. So in all four cases, we do have still the English word today, but it's the, the English meaning is, is sort of a twisting of the original one. Specifically about the Stoics, I think that there are reasons for the stereotype. And, you know, like most stereotypes, they, there is a grain of truth and then there is a distortion that comes with it. The grain of truth is an underlines of what you were saying. So Stoics, resilience is a Stoic value, for sure. Um, you know, the, the Stoics say, uh, look, if you can do something about it, do it. But if not, you just have to accept it. You know, what, what's the point of sort of complaining? Uh, like the, the case that I mentioned earlier of a particular student who was complaining about the world, uh, uh, including things like, uh, like running noses. It's like, well, what, what, are you do, what are you doing there complaining? And there's no point in complaining. You're wasting your time and energy if you do that. So resilience is definitely a component. And then resilience gets twisted into the stiff upper lip stereotype. What about the suppression of emotion? So the point of the sto of Stoic um, practice, Stoic psychology, is not to suppress emotions, for one thing, because it's not possible to suppress emotion. That's another... Mm, <laughs> another we're not Vulcans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. There is nobody, nobody can, do, can, can suppress emotions. That's not, the, that's not the point. The point, rather, was for the Stoics to move away as much as possible from what they considered disruptive emotions and to embrace and cultivate, actively cultivate what they thought were positive emotions. So uh, in the first group, you find things like fear, hatred, and anger. And in the second group, you find things like joy, love, and a sense of justice. So basically what they were telling, uh, what, what they were trying to do was uh, to move away, to, to, to reason as much as possible their way out of anger right? the, and, and toward love or joy. They would say, for instance, you know, that's why I mentioned earlier that um, Seneca wrote a book on anger, which is one of the best um, stoic writings that you can read. And uh, interestingly, Pretty much everything that Stoic that Seneca says on, in on anger, you find it today in the section on anger management at uh, on the website of the American Psychological Association, because it's still advised that it's valid two thousand years uh, later. And if you go through the book, Seneca never says you should suppress anger. Um, in fact, he says quite the opposite. He says you know the problem with anger is that it's unsuppressible. It, once you you yield to it, that's it. You're done. Uh, there's, you, you can't reason to, with it. So what Seneca says is like you should train yourself to recognize the onset of anger, you know, the, the, the initial physiological reaction that you have when you're, 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 metaphorically speaking, your blood is boiling. And at that point, you should be prepared to disengage. Just do something else. Go for a walk, count until 20, 
uh, go to the bathroom and some, do some deep, deep breathing, whatever it is that calms you down. You don't want to argue with your anger because you're going to lose the argument. Uh, you just want to disengage. When you're calm, once you're, you recover your composure, then it's the time to go back and say to yourself, wait a minute, why, why was I getting angry here? What's going on? Um, why was I reacting this way? And then it's time, now that you're calm, to chart a more positive reaction to it, a more, a more you know, maybe you were angry because an injustice was being done. Okay, great. But then instead of acting on the basis of anger, act on the, on the basis of a sense of justice, of a sense of uh, something needs to be done about this, uh, and as opposed to, you know, let me just start swinging fists right and left, because that's not going to be helpful. Uh, finally, I think um, maybe we can relate all this to the situation that we're in right now, um, globally with the pandemic. Is there, are there ways in which the, um, the, the pandemic and the lockdown situation and your own experiences of it, um, have you learned, have you learned new, something new from, from this philosophically? Or has it brought home to you particular uh, philosophical beliefs and attitudes and practices, um, the value of specific practices that you already um, had in your repertoire? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, um, the pandemic has been a pretty in-your-nose reminder of just how close the Stoics actually got to, uh, to getting it right, both in terms of to general philosophy and in terms of practice, for instance. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the Stoics said that we're all interconnected. Uh, they, they were the first cosmopolitans, among the first cosmopolitans, so they're the first people that said, look, it doesn't matter where you're born and it doesn't matter where you grow up, uh, you are a member of the human cosmopolis, of the, the, this universal city of all human beings, and you should be treating every other human being, uh, you know, with respect and dignity because they are human beings and because you are interconnected with them in a, in a you know, very broad um, uh, sort of web of cause and effect. Well, the pandemic has certainly shown that. Isn't it? That's why it's it's a pandemic in the first place because we are in fact so interconnected that the virus has been able to um, jump around very quickly um, and and cover the entire planet. We're also interconnected in other ways that might have not seem obvious uh, early on, but that now are right. I mean, there are a lot of businesses that are closed, and so there are a lot of things you can't do, um, things you take for granted. Like for instance, I haven't been able to cut my hair for you know forty five days. <laughs> And, and it doesn't look good, I, sh- I, I guarantee you. But the, the, just a simple action, such as walking down the street, you know, to, uh, my barber is two blocks down the way uh, from my apartment, just going there and walking there and talking to people and, and, and getting my hair cut, that's not possible because we're interconnected and one, one bit, uh, one, one area, one section of the, of the web has been broken. And so, and this is just one example of many. I mean, the post office is slowing, slowing down dramatically. You know, mail is still delivered, but now it takes weeks before it took days um, and so on and so forth. So this, the pandemic has clearly highlighted precisely what the stocks were talking about. Pay attention to the web of cause and effect because this is your life. This is how things actually work. In terms of the philosophy from a, from a practical perspective, I can tell you, my exercises have never been so useful as they've been <laughs> during this period, right? Um, let me give you just another sort of trivial uh, example. But um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, in 
the middle of this uh, uh, self-isolation, uh, my wife and I wake up in the morning and we discover that our refrigerator is not working. Like, uh-oh, that's not a good thing. Not in the middle, especially, it's never a good thing, but it's never, particularly in the middle of pandemics, because now, now means that all of food is going to spoil and, and, you know, we, we, can't, we can't buy new fresh stuff uh, for, for dinner, you know, that's sort of, so, so now what? Now, normally, my reaction, as in, you know, before I, I started practicing stoicism, my reaction would have been, oh, damn it, you know, there's another thing, we're right in the middle of a pandemic, and, you know, so you get upset, you get, you know, emotionally involved in these things. Nothing like that happened. And the immediate first question, that, you know, we looked at each other and said, okay, so what can we do? Where, where's the actionable part? What is up to us? And the first thing that was up to us was to redo the shopping list for the day and move away from fresh product, produce to canned and dry foods, first of all. So, so we're going to have dinner and we're going to have food for the next several days. Not a problem. Second thing that is up to us, let's call the landlady and see what she says. And the landlady says, okay, well, I cannot send you a new refrigerator because deliveries of large appliances are, are blocked at the moment. Uh, and, you know, they, they cannot happen. But she says, I can send you a, one of these little, you know, uh, dorm kind of college dorm kind of refrigerators that is going to do it for now. And then I'll replace the big one uh, once this whole thing is over. Sure enough, three days later, a small refrigerator showed up at our door. And now we have fresh produce, not as much as we did before. Uh, you know, we have to be a little bit more careful. The, the, the diet has shifted a little bit uh, as a response. But that was it. And so there was no emotional distress. There was no, oh, damn here, damn that, there. And I can't believe this is happening. What do you mean you can't believe this is happening? It's a fact. It's happening. <laughs> Your only choices are how you react to the fact, not whether it is happening or not. The refrigerator is broken. That's it. End of story. Uh, the only question is, what is the best way to deal with the problem, to minimize the negative consequences of the problem? So, and this is just one example of, of many. So I think that these, these um, from my way of looking at things, the pandemic has really sharpened dramatically just how much the Stoics got right, both in terms of theory, you know, the web of cause and effect, and in terms of, of practice, the, the, uh, the Stoic fork and what is up to you and what is not up to you. Mm. Um, is there anything that you would we haven't covered that you wish we had covered and that you'd like to say? Uh, no, I think we covered a lot. I mean, we, we could be <laughs> talking about this for several more hours, but <laughs> I think we covered quite a bit. We could, but I think it's now the buck has passed to me to not um, not take up any more of your time, which you've been <laughs> incredibly generous with. This has been a, a wonderful, uh, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. As many of you know, I'm involved in a project called Letter, www.letter.wiki. Letter is a forum for public one-on-one -on -one correspondence on a variety of topics. We have um, correspondence talking about science, philosophy, art, scholarship, and also about love affairs, writing, social media, bringing up children, sport, cookery. Here at Letter, we are also creating a repository of letters and correspondence about the pandemic. And I would like to encourage you to write to us, write our open letters section, 
about your thoughts, feelings, ideas, frustrations, fears, concerns about the pandemic, the lockdown. Let us know how things are where you are. And I make sure that no good correspondent goes unanswered. I'd like to read you the letter that I have written for you, explaining why I think that it's important to write about the pandemic at this time. Dear friends, over these past few weeks, many of you have probably found your lives turned upside down. We know that some of you are either at high risk of serious and even life-threatening symptoms if you catch COVID-19, and others live with vulnerable relatives. Some have chronic medical conditions that require regular treatment from health services that could become overburdened and unable to provide normal care. Some of you are frontline workers, doctors, nurses, hospital janitors, elder care providers, utility workers, delivery drivers, supermarket cashiers, warehouse shelf stockers and others, and have to go out to your jobs exposing yourselves to personal risk to look after our sick and keep the rest of us healthy, safe and fed. You guys are my heroes. Many, perhaps most of us, are still on lockdown or in quarantine. For some, this has meant relatively little disruption to our normal lives, but others are unable to earn a livelihood, have been fired from their jobs, are anxious about meeting rent or paying bills. Some are separated from loved ones, alone and isolated. We're all facing tremendous uncertainty about the future, and many of us feel helpless. But there are ways in which we can help each other get through this, and this platform, we hope, will provide one. There have been many pandemics in the past, but we have at least one advantage over all our predecessors. While we may be physically separated, we can communicate with people all over the globe in an instant. We cannot talk to each other face to face. We can't gather and exchange warm hugs as many of us would do in any other crisis, but we can write to each other, and I believe we should. Writing is a comfort, taking the time to sit down, unravel your tangled thoughts and lay them out on the virtual page one by one can make them more manageable. It's not self-indulgent to describe your experiences. It is helpful to others who may see similarities with their own situations and therefore feel less alone. By writing to each other, we can offer each other moral support and the knowledge that someone else understands. Paradoxically, it's in the things that feel most deeply personal, in our most profound sorrows, in the private anxieties that wake us in the early hours, that we are most alike. The pandemic has shown how inextricably we are all connected. We depend on each other for our lives. Few of us can be healthy if too many of us are ill. And we depend on each other for our livelihoods. Few of us can flourish if too many of us are poor. We are connected also in our need to make our voices heard. This is a unique moment in history and we should not let it go undocumented. A public record of the personal experiences of people around the world could provide a trove of invaluable testimony. Crises are clarifying. 
They stress test our beliefs and values, forcing us to define what is most important. We need to come through this knowing what we must defend and what we can discard as pointless and superficial. And we need to think and write about this now while it is still fresh in our minds, lest we fail to learn from this experience. I'd like to encourage you all to use the Open Letters page at Letter, which I'll put in the show notes, as a public journal of your experiences. We're here to help you connect with others across the globe and find like-minded correspondence. Every letter you write can be replied to directly. And I will also personally make sure that everybody, everyone's first letter does not go unanswered. We will also try to match those who need specific advice and help with others who can offer it. While we're separated physically, let's connect digitally. Let's write to each other and to the world. Stay well. Warmest love. Iona. London, 2nd of April, 2nd of May. Gosh, it's already May 2020. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant. Edited by Helen Pluckrose, with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At Ariel, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both Ariel and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for Ariel A. R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. 2 for T is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, Take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.